With me on Mission Impact today is Danielle Marshall. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without being a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategy consultant. Mission Impact is brought to you by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting brings you whole brain strategic planning, impact mapping, and service audits for nonprofits and associations. Today's episode is a little different and an experiment. Danielle came on the show on episode 56 in September of 2022 called Applying an Equity Lens to Your Work. And she's also featured in the two-part series that I did on building healthy organizational cultures on episodes 62 and 63. Danielle and I connected in a couple different places. First as part of the Nonprofitist Consultant Network, also as part of the Nonprofit Standards of Excellence Consultant Network, and with Maryland Nonprofits uh, Consultants. And we also shared a client at one point. I really appreciated Danielle's perspective and thinking each time I had the chance to talk with her. So I invited her to partner with me and come on the show periodically to have a conversation about the nonprofit sector, the trends we're seeing, what we're observing with our clients, and to have a chance to dig deeper into these topics than just a one-off interview provides the opportunity for. This time, we both read articles, two articles from the Nonprofit Quarterly, and used those as a jumping off point for our conversation. The first was called uh, Building Resilient Organizations Toward Joy and Durable Power in a Time of Crisis by Maurice Mitchell. And the second was written in response to Mitchell's article. It was called Paving a Better Way, What's Driving Progressive Organizations Apart and How to Win by Coming Together by Rebecca Epstein and Mistigret Smith. Both of these articles are rich, and I definitely highly recommend that you read them. I will put links in the show notes for them so you can find them easily. And while Danielle and my conversation started with some of the material in those articles, we ranged quite a bit beyond that as well. We talked about how no group of people, whether it's by social identity of race, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, or a movement, is a monolith. We always need to consider the nuances of the individuals, teams, organizations, or coalitions that make up that larger group, and our meaning-making brains and the stories we make up about each other, as well as the generational gaps in leadership and frontline staff perspectives and expectations. I especially appreciated Daniel's point that staff's reflexive anti-leadership stance, and that's something that uh, Mitchell talks about in his article, seeing hierarchy as bad, always, really stems out of the feeling of not being seen or heard, and that desire to be heard and to matter. Organizations are exploring lots of different models for leadership to address the challenges of that strict hierarchy can create. More organizations are having co-executive directors. Some have experimented with holacracy and other forms of self-organization and distributed leadership. And on episode 69, my conversation with Jean Bell explores the experiment she's engaged with with a few organizations on really embedding strategy throughout the organization through some different structures. Ultimately, taking the time to explore what are the conditions that are going to help your organization thrive gets to the key question. This can look like having conversations about how do we make decisions here? Is that process clear and transparent? And to what extent can it be transparent and what needs to be more confidential? What are the power dynamics at play and what do those look like in our context? What are the values and ways of being that defined us at our beginning that perhaps no longer serve us? We explore this and more. So let's get to the conversation. 
Welcome, Danielle. Welcome to Mission Impact. Hi, Carol. It's good to be back with you. And um, we are going to be doing something a little bit different that today. Um, I've asked Danielle to come back on and come back on over the, the next couple months, uh, several times and perhaps into the future to just have a conversation about some stuff that's kind of going on in the sector, bigger picture um, conversation. And uh, we're going to we're, we're grounding it in um, a conversation around a couple different articles that we both read. But I'm sure as our conversation goes forward, we're we're going to um, end up in different places than than these articles. But one of them, I'll just I want to say the names of them so that that folks have the reference. But one of them is called uh, Bu- Building Resilient Organizations Toward Joy and Durable Power in a Time of Crisis by Maurice Mitchell uh, that appeared in the Nonprofit Quarterly um, actually back in 2022, so a little bit about six months ago. And then um, a second article that was in response to to his, which really sparked a conversation I saw in a multitude of different places um, called Paving a Better Way was Driving Progressive Organizations Apart and How to Win by Coming Together by uh, Rebecca Epstein and Mr. Quent Smith, uh, also in the Nonprofit Quarterly 2023. Um, so yeah, it's just some context there, but really we'll, we'll see where this conversation goes. So one of the first, um, things that jumped out at me in the, in the first article was the statement, um, movements on the left are driven by the same political and social contradictions, contradictions that we strive to overcome. And this really brought me back actually to the, even before I was working, um, during college, I did study abroad in um, in Germany, actually in in West Berlin. So that really dates me. It was uh, pre the fall of the Berlin Wall, and I did I part of the study abroad that I did. I was doing a a research project, and um, the thing that I looked at was I was going to the um, Berlin's Green Party, which would be the equivalent of the you know, far left of our Democratic Party here in the United States. And at that time, my lens was really around gender equity. And I was looking at you know, the aspirations and the rhetoric that that organization had around that uh, lens of equity, equity, and then really the experience of women in the organization. So, um, and it just always makes me think that no matter what the mission is, we're always living in that wider structure, um, and and we can't forget that. Yeah, I I definitely appreciate that. Also, Carol, I, you know, I I think it speaks to a couple of things for me is that we we have a tendency to believe as people um, that there's a particular pathway um, to get certain things done, uh, and it. In, in holding that belief, it does not lead or leave space, I should say, for other ways of, of sort of viewing it. And I think when I consider uh, movements, um, even within movements, like we're, we're complex, right? The movement is complex, but part of the reason that the movement is complex is because people are full of complexity. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that just really occurs to me that I am spending more and more time trying to understand right now is... How do we understand both groups? So whether it is a political party, whether it is a cultural group, um, subculture, 
but then also allow for those nuances to exist within the people um, within those groups. Yeah, I think, um, and and uh, Maurice Mitchell goes on to to talk about kind of this uh, identity politics and how we are all more than than those identities. Um, and I think that was that was one of the the things that jumped out at you when you were reading the reading the article. Can you yeah, say a little bit more about that? It, it definitely did. I think what I walked away with, I appreciated his particular lens on it. Uh, but the thing that struck me most strongly in, in reading it is this idea that we are not monolithic um, as as people. Right. So whatever group that we belong to, whatever social identity you claim, that even within that, yes, we may have some, uh, you know, cultural norms and values associated with that identity. Uh, but at any given time, we still have the freedom, if you will, to have individual preferences. And so what does that mean? I think both as individuals, but then also when you bring that into the sphere of whether it is nonprofit work or thinking about uh, movements, you know, they're talking a lot about a progressive movement, social justice movement, movements, et cetera. Um, how do you both acknowledge cultural patterns that may exist within these groups, but then also understand that just because someone shows up in a particular body with a particular identity, a particular background, that they may not believe or value the same things their group is, quote unquote, supposed to believe in and value. Right. And so with with my social identities as a Gen X American white woman, um, uh, you know, background, I grew up uh, upper middle class, and you can list all of those things. And I think there's value in, um, and and it and it's interesting how uncomfortable it can be for white people to just name that they're white people, um, and and claim an identity because we're in in the United States identified with the you know the what's what's too frequently seen as the default or you know the dominant culture. Um, and I think it's there's there's value in in being aware of all of those identities, but then not to extrapolate then, well, I see this. I mean, it's just the, it's like the extension, all the all the stereotypes that we're trying to walk ourselves away from or all the inherent bias that we're trying to become more educated about that just because someone, you know, has all of those labels doesn't mean that I know how they think about this particular thing or or any of that. Yeah. Um, I, it's so interesting that you say that, too, because as, as I'm listening to you talk, I was flashing back to um, a situation in early in my career where I was asked to go into a community and I was leading a facilitation. And it was down in South Carolina. Um, and I was one of the only black people on staff that was doing this particular type of work at the time. And I walked in the door and another black woman looks at me and she goes, oh, my God, thank God you're here. And that was her reaction. Um, and you could see her eyes lit up and it's almost like she wanted to give me a hug in that moment. And I could both appreciate the sentiment behind it because I know what it feels like to be one of in a given context. But what was also really interesting is we couldn't have been more different, mm. right? We were, we were women. We were both black. Um, there were generational differences. There were educational differences. 
uh, class differences, et cetera, even lived experience, right? I'm not from the South. Uh, and so I adored her and we worked wonderfully together, right? And there was so much for us to learn. But I wonder what it means even when we look at someone and we're like, oh, of course you believe what I believe because you, you have the same identity, right? And so that's so interesting. Um, my neighbor, um, I'll share this really quickly. My neighbor who is um, a different political affiliation, I will just say that, than I uh, am. Uh, we were talking one day. And he says, well, I know who you're going to vote for because we clearly share the same values. Now, the reason I know who this individual was voting for is because they had a big sign in their window. And I was like, you couldn't possibly understand me less if you think that is who I'm voting for. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just this assumption about who people are, right? Where do we affiliate? What feels like is, is normal? Um, and just because I live in the same neighborhood as you, or I may look like I belong to the same social identity, or I may work in the same industry, does not mean that we're approaching it from the exact same perspective. Yeah, and I mean, our human brains like to simplify things, and like, we like to categorize, we like to put people in boxes, and we, you know, there are all these subconscious uh, shortcuts that we take, and then we project all of that onto folks as we see them. And I mean, that's a lot of, you know, what goes into the work that you and I do is really helping people slow down a little bit so that they can acknowledge what those stories are. You know, what's the story that they're telling about an incident, a person, um, something that they've heard from management come down and, and yeah. all of those things. I am, you know, we talk about this a lot. I'm big on the narratives uh, that we tell each other, uh, well, that we tell ourselves, right? So we, we come to conclusions about what has in fact happened, sometimes with very little data other than the story we made up. Uh, and so what does it mean to be more curious to look into things uh, from a more discerning sort of lens, uh, both to ask questions, like on a, on a pretty basic level, like how do you actually feel about this? Is this the same way? You know, did you see the situation similarly? Did you differ in some respect? What has your experience been, right? So I, I want to know more than what I can observe with my eyes. Uh, because I think that is really critical in this moment. But then at the same time, it's like, are we using data to actually back this up? And I know in an age where facts are questionable at best right now, uh, that has become more challenging. But I do think that we we need to be able to rely on data, both qualitative and quantitative, to make sense of the world. Uh, and we can't dismiss that as we're, even as we're dealing with the issue of identity, you know, like how, how are people showing up in these moments? What are their experiences like? What are their belief systems, right? And then still allowing within that for that individual's, uh, individualization to show up. Yeah, and I, I remember back to graduate school where we were learning about the the ladder of inference, and um, it was graduate school that helped me realize that I actually wasn't always right, which I often was disabuse was was convinced of, and a lot of it was you know being able to unpack that. Um, so the ladder of inference is you see something, there's data, something happens in the world, something you experience, something you feel, something, and then the way our brains are structured, we just, we make, we are meaning making machines. We make meaning of that. And then we believe our own meaning. 
So, you know, I mm. observe something, you say something, I take, you know, take something from that. And then I believe whatever I've made up about it. But it's really, if we break it down and we slow down, you know, I can then recognize, oh, those are my thoughts about it. That's the story I've made up. What's actually happening? And, and to slow down and be curious about it. Yeah, I, I appreciate that for sure. Um, a mentor of mine often asks the question of what are the facts of the situation? So not how you feel about it, not what you thought you saw, but like what is actually true in this moment? Uh, because there is something about examining what the facts actually are, right? We, we could tell a story about any given thing, but what has actually happened in this moment? Um, because if we can discern what the facts are, now you might talk about like, you know, where this belief came from, how it makes you feel. Is there another way to see this? Right? Because we're grounded in the reality of what has happened, not just our perspective given the context, how we were feeling on that particular day, you know, how we interpreted what was said to us or done in a moment. Um, but we're actually looking at um, something that's objective. And even those feelings that you're having about it can be part of the data if you start naming them. Right. And and, you know, you talked about data and different kinds of data. And I feel like that's, you know, a lot of why why consultants come in and ask so many questions. Because <laughs> we're, we're trying to get, you know, pull all of that data out of the organization, out of the people, um, bring all those, you know, not all, but as many perspectives as we can um, and bring that together to kind of see, you know, and objective, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how objective we can ever be, um, but uh, as close as possible to being able to say, okay, here's a snapshot of how everyone's seeing this situation, uh, the organization, its strengths, et cetera. Yeah. I, I think the point that you're hitting on in particular is important to me also, because I don't know that we ever get to a place where we have a complete picture of anything. Right. Um, yes, we can have data. Feelings can also be included in that data, as can many other um, variables. But what it feels like we benefit from is having an opportunity to have a more complete picture. Uh, and so in, in building a more complete picture, I am not simply relying on my understanding of the world. Right? I can utilize that, and that is a data set, if you will, in its own right. However, if I am to remain curious and to involve multiple perspectives, now I can sit down and say, hey, Carol, at our organization, here are the things that I'm noticing. What are you noticing? Um, where are the potential uh, you know, spots that we need to, to dig deeper into? Like, is there something that we're missing? And so I think that uh, it is about being able to remain uh, open, curious, and, and to some degree humble with it, right? So that humility comes in from the perspective of I have to go into the conversation understanding I don't know everything. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm sort of smiling uh, back to, you know, what you said earlier around like your younger self, because I, I know my younger self knew everything, right? There was nothing oh, you could tell me at goodness. that point. <laughs> Uh, but I think that is the beauty of, of aging in that way as we get older. Hopefully, you are more aware than ever before of what you don't have access to. Yeah, if I've learned anything, it's how little I actually know. 
I knew everything when I was 19. And that goes to the the second article, which really is talking about this kind of gap. And I mean, it's really the gap that kind of started me into wanting to know more about organization development, wanting to know more about how groups work together, which was that gap that I saw back in my 20s when I was working in an organization or different organizations between their mission, their public rhetoric, and then my experience internally as a staff member. And I think the big difference between then, back in the 90s, and now um, is that you know, I didn't have access to social media to to you know broadcast about my my experience of the organization and um, <clears throat> that you know. But they're seeing not just us organizations that center social justice, but but many different organizations um, in the nonprofit sector where there's that real there's it feels like kind of a generational clash between leadership and and younger staff with differing perspectives on how they think things should be done. Yeah. Times are changing. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thankfully so. Uh, yeah, things, things definitely feel different right now uh, in terms of what it looks like to be within an organization, what leadership should be, could be, you know, all of the things that, that people are sort of wrestling with. And even this anti-leadership sentiment that exists in so many organizations. You know, we, we have for years, I think, heard the cries for people who wanted a flat organization and those who wanted the hierarchy, um, but then neither was working for, you know, for the, the masses. And I think it's an opportunity now to step back and instead of just following the traditional pattern, I think I'm more in into meaning making, like what makes sense for our organization today? You know, mm. based on the people that are both within our organization right now, the people that we serve as nonprofits, but also, you know, somewhat forward thinking, who do we want to have in the organization? What is going to work well to both bring them in and retain them once they get here? Um, and, and I think what has been really tricky, you know, as I think about flat leadership structures uh, in particular, is that people seem to still, I think it's maybe so encoded into our society, they're still looking for someone to make a decision at the end of the day, mm. right? And so I, it's not just about the reorg, um, you know, of staffing and who's reporting to who that matters. I think there needs to be clarity as we make these choices. Who am I sharing information with? Who's responsible for the decision at the end of the day? How do I get involved? You know, like I think there are so many questions that have been left unspoken in hopes that the organization would sort of figure it out on their own. And that is running sort of head on into, I think, some of these other anti-leadership uh, components that I see where we're in a time right now where people really are struggling to be seen and heard, right? So just going back again to tap into so, sort of social identity and, and so forth, People are, regardless of what identity they have, someone is always feeling like they are not heard in this moment, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not seeing, you're not recognizing my particular need. Um, and so it, it reasons to me when I think about leadership, like this is also going to be one of the big headaches leaders have to deal with because I'm trying to figure out, one, what the structure of our organization is, how to be equitable in my approach, how to make sure that, you know, I'm cultivating a positive culture here. And I now have 
50, 100, 500 employees, each of who is saying, you know what, I want to be seen as the individual. I want to be able to show up and be recognized. And that isn't a small thing to take on. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I've, I've been in very hierarchical organizations. I've been in very small, relatively flat organizations. But even the small, relatively flat organizations, we had to recognize that there was still a power dynamic between where I was, you know, kind of in the middle and the executive director who, you know, I had to remind the person ultimately, like, you have the power to fire me. <laughs> that is the power that you have over me yeah. in this contract of employment that, yeah, yes, we want to be a team. Yes, we want to be collaborative. Yes, we want to be see each other as partners. We want to cultivate as healthy a culture as possible. And ultimately, at the at the end of the day, there's a social contract. There's a literal contract of, of employment that you're in in that circumstance. Yeah, I, I think this is, again, why I keep going back to this idea of co-creation. I mean, it, it mm. does require slowing down the process for sure. But the word you just used is, you know, it, it you talked about it requiring an acknowledgement of power. In this country, when we say power, it's like you can almost see people's bodies tension tense up right like it's like they're holding all kinds of stress in and like what do you mean and I don't have any power or yeah he's too powerful or there's something that's attached to it and I know we've talked about this previously like I am really careful about language in general because I do believe that people hear things differently Right, based on who they are, their experiences, et cetera. And I think we cannot continue to just use words without offering some level of clarity as to what it means. And so even in power, you know, one person in your scenario might be hearing this as, you know, we're a flat organization. Of course, we work on everything together. You know, I bring all kinds of stuff, whether it's funding or, you know, decision making, I bring it to the group. And so they're in their mind, maybe not seeing that there's a power dynamic at all. But because you are hired in and you know that this person holds the power to, you know, let you go if, if this is no longer working for them, then there is a power dynamic that we need to exa examine. Um, so I think that's it's number one, it's being able to name it. But the other thing that is interesting for me to look at from a co-creation model is what does power mean in our organization? Right. I can't necessarily change what it means outside of our organization. Right. There are powers that be, if you will, out there playing with that. Um, however, within this organization, we do have an opportunity to say, here's how we're going to contextualize it for the work that we do. This is what it's going to mean in the relationship dynamics. It does not change at the end of the day that, you know, someone still hired you. They have the right to fire you at the end of the day. And so, you know, like I, I think it's a naming of that but then also being able to say, what, what is it that we want it to look like? And how do we get there together? Yeah. And I think bringing up, you know, it's oftentimes why I ask organizations and it can be a little bit of a challenging thing for folks to answer, like how do decisions get made here? You know, and, and, you know, are people clear about how those decisions are made? Are, are people willing to talk about, you know, what is the power that we have, um, you know, what, what power are we trying to create? We often organizations are talking about we're empowering people. Uh, what does that actually mean to them? 
and and as as you said, I really appreciate the the notion of really dialing into um what's your own context what's your what's going on inside your organization it's really kind of about what's your sphere of control uh, to, uh, to the extent that you have some control of what can you influence and and then you know what what really is beyond your control or or influence um and and being clear about those two uh but yeah i think a lot of what i appreciate about the kind of work that the both of us do is is helping people have those conversations that that they don't normally have in the day to day that lift up things ask questions you know help them do that co-creation process um for whatever end it is uh in a way that isn't your typical staff meeting agenda. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have been thinking a little bit more about like, it's those strategic questions that one gets to ask. Um, because, you know, we just talked about co-creation, but like immediately as, you know, I'm tying this into, but like, what are the conditions that allow that to flourish? Mm. Right. So if we're going to name things, let's not just define power and contextualize it for our organization. But like what is going to allow the conditions to be right for us to actually do this co-creation model, to have something tangible that comes out of this as a result that we can implement? Um, because, you know, I, just as one trigger I could see throwing this all into a tizzy is when there's stress. We, not, we may not be in the same position anymore, right, to start talking about or continue a conversation about co-creation, right, or power sharing in this way, because now I'm feeling stressed. I have a, you know, a funder is needing something right away. Um, there's a sense of urgency tied into that. There are all of these things that are just sort of coming in, and instead of now taking the time and the space that we need to sit here and figure this out together, there are forces that are pushing you to make a quick decision to move, you know, much faster. Um, and quite frankly, to cannibalize in that moment, the, the efforts that you have made and the achievements you've made to date, because they're like wiped out the second a bigger stressor comes into play. And so if I'm to think about that, how do I both plan for the outcomes I want, but also those potential, you know, unintended, you know, barriers that might come up along the way that I just, I wasn't thinking about before. Yeah, because, you know, we we talk a lot about uh, unhealthy cultures and organizations, but nobody wakes up in the morning. No executive director wakes up in the morning and well, I won't say no. <laughs> very few, very few executive directors, maybe Dr. Evil out there does wake up and then want to create a toxic organization. But very few want, you know, come in and say, I am going, my, my purpose in life is to make everyone miserable. Um, but yeah, how, how, those conditions and then what are all the things that are that are piling on a leader? Um, and I think that's one of the the things that I've learned over the course of my career is, you know, when you're when you're a frontline worker, you kind of look up the hierarchy of the organization, and no matter how flat it is, there's usually some layers, um, and think, oh, that person has so much power, has so much discretion. And then once you move to, for you know, in, into different roles, you're like, oh, I, these are all the things, the ways that I'm hemmed in, those those stressors that you're talking about, um, and and so you you don't have as much leeway as you thought you might have in that leadership role. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it, it almost begs the question for me also that uh, 
what is going to allow me to show up and be my best. Mm -hmm. It's hard being an executive director. There is no doubt about that. Um, it is also a very lonely role, right? You're sitting at the top, whether you're executive director or CEO, you're at the top of the organization. Unless you are going outside of your organization to talk to other peers, you often don't have someone to, uh, you know, to brainstorm with, to commiserate, or, you know, I just need to, to get this off my chest. Those opportunities are not as plentiful as they would be if you were on, you know, even at a director level with an organization where you have peer-to-peer -peer relationships. Um, and so as I, I think about that, you know, we often talk about, is this person qualified to do the work? Meaning, you know, are they an excellent fundraiser? Are they a great person, you know, to speak to the community externally? Can they handle the day-to-day -day operations of the organization? But I wonder on some level if we should not also be asking about their own, I don't want to call it self-care because I, I, I don't think, I think it's more than self-care, right? It's, it's the how are you caring for yourself daily? Um, how are you making sure that you can show up as your, the best version of you? Understanding they're still human, right? And we're, we're going to have our ups and downs. But in a job that is so absolutely demanding where everyone is always looking to you to have the right answer, on some level, like you do have to take extra time and care with you. Uh, when I look at the number of executive directors who have transitioned out, uh, and some really quickly at that, um, or you know, they're, maybe they've been around for a long time, but they're just burnt out at the end, I'm like, there's something to be said about both the pace that's, that we're running and this lack of care for ourselves because we put everyone else first. Right, right, and and perhaps that's part of what's what's driving the 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 kind of move towards co executive directorships. But even that, I mean, doing that, you might have you'll you'll have someone to talk to, a, a partner, but then you have to negotiate that that relationship and who's doing what and who's you know moving forward on this piece, who's moving forward on that piece, and and how are we working together? How are we presenting a united front? Um, how are we disagreeing? Uh, you know, so it, it it provides solutions. It provides a different way of being in leadership, but it also provide you know brings a whole bunch of complexity. Yeah, for sure. And and how well do those two individuals work together? Right. Right. So talk about co co-creation and redefining things what does it mean for us and you know it, it is not lost on me as I say like how do we co-create for the organization that we have today like it's also tricky because there's such a great level of transition that exists out there right now so does this mean that we need to stop the process and redo it every time we bring someone new into the organization uh, that there's a leadership change like what what does that look like and how willing are we to sit with the fact that our culture within our organizations will continue to evolve? Mm. Yeah, I've, I've worked for several founders over the years. Um, and I deeply appreciated the passion that they had for the mission and how strongly they articulated the values of, you know, the organization. This is why they founded it, right? I stand fundamentally behind this. And then, you know, 20 years later, 
yes, you may stand on certain values, right? Those were really important in terms of shaping this organization. But has anything changed since then? Right? Like, have, have you changed, one, as a leader? Have the people in the organization changed? Has the community you serve changed? And certainly has the world around you changed? And I think we're living right now in a day and age where change is coming faster than ever. And yet I'm hearing people talk about, we can't change this because this is core to our culture. But Can if you give me an example of that? I may have to come back to that. Because I have one, but I can't think of it right now. <laughs> Well, what it makes me think of, I was just on a call, uh, you know, with a potential client about a, a strategic planning process. And one of the people um, was talking about that, just that they had been on staff. They weren't, I don't believe they were the founder of the organization, but they were the person in the group who had been with the organization the longest. And when we asked about their fears of the process, um, the thing that they talked about was not losing the essence of the organization as it looked to change and move forward. That how can we keep that kind of core piece of what makes that organization different, unique, um, you know, the kind of their special sauce. Um, and then, you know, another person saying, and there's a tension around that of we want to keep our essence and we need to, you know, be continue to be relevant within the wider context that we're in. Yeah. So one example that I've seen is with a smaller, or excuse me, they were small when they started out nonprofit, um, who only had about three or four people when they first, you know, launched the organization. And so, so much of their culture was around being uh, a small and scrappy team, right? And, and, one of the core values is like we we go to bat for each other. We always pitch in um, to help the next person, et cetera, to the extent that it was talked about as we're like family. And this is what I mean when I say have things changed, right? So this organization went from being, let's say, a four-person organization to, you know, they grew to 15 and then they're 30 and they're, you know, they're larger now. I think there's about probably about 40 people that work there. And while I understand the sentiment of help your colleagues out, pitch in to make sure that we can get the job done effectively um, and in a caring manner is still there, but even the very language of we're like a family has changed in terms of how we relate to that in a work context now. Um, and so for people who have not come across this right now, like, you know, when, when people say, hey, our organization's like a family, there are many people out there who believe that is a very toxic statement, right? And like, stay away, all kinds of red flags going up. Because when you think about family, um, yes, you pitch in, uh, you help each other out. But the thing is, you also accept more from family than you would ever accept in a working environment, right? There are expectations that go above and beyond the transaction, which is work. You are paid to do a particular job you come in, I do that job, you pay me, I go home. With family, it doesn't quite work that way. We're not receiving compensation, number one. 
and you're doing it out of sort of this care and love for your your family unit but if someone's like hey stay late and watch the kids tonight like there is no out on that one right like that is what the family does you pitch in to support that but now all of a sudden if you're asking me stay late uh, I'm not gonna pay you extra by the way you're on salary right stay late and do this thing we're a family that lands a lot differently um, and so from a culture perspective in terms of the organization are we so beholden to the way we started right because I'm not saying that the the sentiment again of helping each other out is wrong and being there for one another but the language and the because the language almost prompts the belief system if you will right mm -hmm. if I believe you're like family then of course you're gonna do everything and then some for me because that's what a family does and I'm like hey hello love you but we're not family we're not family in this case, right? I work for you and I'm going home. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what makes sense at the very beginning when it's a small team and it, there's a little bit of that sense of, you might put it as like, you know, all hands on deck or, you know, you just got to pitch in, you got to jump in, you got to do the thing over time can just create beyond the family issue and the, the kind of what does that connotate and what a belief systems do people bring about their families uh, or their, you know, their experience of their family of origin, all of that, mm -hmm. you know, just over it, it, with more and more people, it, it actually introduces a lot of almost like static into the system where people don't know, what's my lane? What's your lane? What's my, yeah. you know, so that's why often when you go from that, like four to let's say 15, 20, one of the core issues is actually clarifying roles and responsibilities, starting to set more boundaries, being clear about what are those guidelines or, or you know, guardrails that, that enable people to show up productively, but still with that realization that yes, I'm committed to the mission. Yes. I see this as more than a job, and it is a job. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm a, really loving the fact that you brought in this idea of even the experiences that we have in our families, in our homes, look different from household to household. Sure. Right? And so if we're entering, you know, if, if let's say the leader in this case says we're like a family, well, how do you define family? And what are the roles that get played out, you know, in your household versus the next one and maybe you could still navigate around that when there's four people on the team but now we're at you know 20 30 people that's a lot of households to consider so to speak right and that's just one example but that's that's a lot that's going on which is where i keep coming back to this idea of like how do we contextualize what the core value is for our organization and bring it to life here here when we say all hands on deck or we need people to be able to support one another this is what this means this is also how it ties back to your role, right? And, and I think there needs to be space for, because we haven't really talked about it yet either, but boundaries. Well, what I, what I love about the, the, the agreement that we now have to come back for future conversations is that I will, I will put a pin in boundaries and um, we don't, you know, we aren't going to be able to deal with all the things in one conversation. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity uh, of going deeper uh, with each conversation with you as we kind of dig in. So um, we'll put a pin in that one and um, we'll come back to it. But really appreciated this this initial 
well, I guess kind of follow on conversation from from our previous interview, but but kind of a different uh, way of uh, engaging and and um, look forward to um, future co-creation. That sounds wonderful, Carol. Always a pleasure to join you. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Danielle Marshall, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. And I want to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as Cindy Rivera-Grazer of 100 Ninjas for her production support. Mission Impact is brought to you by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector brings you whole brain strategic planning, mapping, and audits for nonprofits and associations. We combine left brain strategy and analytics with right brain wisdom about human complexities for a proven whole brain, whole organization process through which every stakeholder thrives. Reach out to us for support and facilitation of your strategic planning, mapping your impact, auditing your services, or getting an organizational assessment. We especially love working with staffed nonprofits and associations with progressive human-centered missions. And we want to hear from you about the podcast. Take a minute to give us some feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. And until next time, thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact.